part two with Tom Stevenson. So do you think that fast forwarding to now, that sparkling wine and also champagne, is it, do you think people are grasping this as a more of a serious wine? Like a lot of people will associate say an old Bordeaux or various other wines that they are familiar with as serious wines that they can go into detail. Champagne and sparkling wine has had the branding almost of being a party wine. It's, it's, it's a fun wine. But do you think that's changing? I think it's, it's already changed. I mean, okay. um, if you go back to when I first started researching champagne in 1980, even in champagne, they just talked about it as a celebration, popping the cork oh, really? to have a toast and that sort of thing. And I thought this is ridiculous because this is the most versatile wine at the table. I've always, people ask me, what can I serve with whatever it happens to be? And I said, look, if, you, if you're unsure what to serve with it, you serve champagne and it will go with it. Uh, and sometimes it will go with it exceedingly well. It's just so good. The, the, the effervescence, you know, cuts through different, the balance is, and you, you had a lot of people that just did not, that were serious wine drinkers. And even those that collectors that collected the um, bling of champagne, if you like, the, the, uh, Christelle, the Dom Perignon. The branding of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, even those people, they had a bit of an attitude of, well, we'll just pop this, have a glass of this, then we'll move on to the serious stuff, the white, you know, the white burgundies, the red Bordeaux, and all the rest of it. Now champagne and other sparkling wines have got a seat at the table. That's, that's where it should be. It, should, it deserves to be at the table. And it's not just champagne, it's all sparkling wines. And other sparkling wines than champagne had a bad reputation because up until, you know, 15, 20 years ago, most other sparkling wines were really pretty dire. But now they are so, so good all around the world because it's this... Uh, described it earlier, it's this sort of man-made, most technical of wines. So wherever you are around the world, you can, with technology, get a certain level of, you, you, you need the climate, more than soil, you need the climate. Mm. Um, so if you've got the climate and the soil, you, you can make great sparkling wine. But even if you don't have the climate and the soil, if you've got the technology now, you can make good sparkling wine. Not, not fantastic, but you can make good sparkling wine. So that's, as you say, it's not just down to the terroir, it's also having the ability as the winemaker to make the use of the technological advances. Well, they have to, yeah. Yeah, okay. Tom, you've written a number of books, and I need to point out that they're also on different types of wine. It's not just fizz, hence being known as Mr. Fizz. Uh, but a particular baby of yours is the Champagne and Sparkling Wine World Championships, which very good to be here today, which you started, is it nine years ago, I believe? 2014, yeah. What led you to wanting to start this event? Well, before that, for, for nine years, I was um, in charge of the Champagne panel 
at Decanter's World Wine Awards. And sparkling wines were getting judged elsewhere um, with the different nationalities, um, which I thought the people that were judging those wines weren't really equipped to judge a sparkling wine because they don't taste it often enough to, to be particularly competent in tasting it. So, and, and even on my champagne panel, I had to fight hard to get specialists like SES here, Avalan, um, and the late Tony Jordan. I could get Tony some years, but not other, other years, because he was also wanted on the Australian panel. And, and I just thought, wouldn't it be really a good idea to get just specialists to taste champagne and sparkling wine. Most competitions just have it as sort of as an offshoot. They don't, you know, it's, they don't concentrate on it. Just to have champagne and sparkling wine, get the best tasters in champagne and sparkling wine, just concentrate on that and have uh, a limited number of, of judges because... The trouble with the larger competitions, the larger it gets, the more judges they bring in. Some of these competitions have hundreds of judges. It's very complex, unnecessarily so, I would have thought. Well, not so, because they want to do it all in two or three days or something. Yeah. You know, so we're here for two weeks because the same judges taste every single champagne and sparkling wine that gets a medal. So... We not only have the specialist tasters, exactly the same specialist tasters give a medal for Japan as for Champagne as all of them. And that's one important. And I, we did other things. You know, as, as we've gone on, we've done other things to, to do what we think is very important to, to, the, to, to get the competition right. And if you're... Just the one person that starts up a competition like this, you're more able to change the rules on the fly. On the fly, because you know I'm I'm not answering to some big organisation. I'm uh, doing this competition, and if somebody makes a suggestion, I say that's a good idea. We do that, and, and we can just change like that if it's sure. if it's for the best. And we've done lots of things. One of the first things I, I introduced was when, as soon as all the wines come, those in clear bottles get covered because light strike is more of a problem for faults than corked wines, TCA, now. And anyone who uses a clear glass bottle really shouldn't be using a clear glass bottle. But if we're to judge them, then the moment we get them, we have to treat them properly so they're all covered in black plastic and then until the moment, you know, well, it's, it's poured and then we get them. They never see daylight. Um, so that's one thing because we get, and that's really drastically re reduced the number of light strike wines that we get. We still get them because in the wineries, some people are less strict in how they do it they don't understand maybe 
that there's a problem with, with light affecting quality of a wine. And the other thing was, I think the other big difference with our competition is we have somebody who sits in another room and every wine that doesn't get a medal, she puts that one side, she takes another bottle and opens that and then she matches them to see if there's any difference. Because if it's got a fault, if the first bottle's got a fault, we call for another bottle. That's fine. But some uh, faults are almost invisible. But they've done things like, like you can have a very low amount of TCA, which scalps the fruit. Now, if you're not picking up the TCA, you're tasting a wine that just has, that's thin, has no fruit. So that can get marked down mm -hmm. without actually seeing a fault. But if you've got somebody who can see the bottles and, and just brings out another one, and then if they find, a, ah, this, this one is much different, this bottle here has, has a fault, they can, we had two of them re-entered into the competition just today. Some years we might, over a thousand odd wines, we might only have six bottles over the entire time um, re-entered into the competition. But it's, it always gives me um, some sort of reassurance that we're giving everybody the chance for their wines to shine. Yeah, as you, as you say, it's a, well, it should be creating an, an, even excuse me, an even playing field. Tom, I was... I was wondering, I mean, the, so the awards ceremony has been going on for a number of years now. You've had contact with many big characters in wine, tried all of these different champagnes and wines on a whole. Do you have any, is there a particular moment that really stands out to you from the last 20 or so years of doing all this? I realise that's quite a big question with, with all of the wines and everything. Is there, is there a moment you thought, God, this wine has, has grasped me or something that when all the judges were able to comment on? Oh, so you're talking about nine years of competition, not 20. Any, any period you would like to mention? Um, uh, so within the awards then, within the Champagne and Sparkling Wine World Championships, has there been a moment? Well, the, the, there are always moments every... Yeah. Well, that's good. <laughs> there are always moments, like in the very first one, uh, we gave an, a gold medal to a wine from Croatia. We had no idea that the wines from Croatia were even sort of drinkable, but that was the very first. Okay. That was 2014, and it got picked up on because it was 100 years before, of course, the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand that, um, in Croatia that started the First World War. So exactly 100 years later, Croatia... <laughs> Um, waved the flag for sparkling wine at our competition. Um, so that was, that was a good thing. Last year, for example, we, well, last year and the year before, we were tasting wines from Sicily. That's a rock in the baking hot sun. <laughs> and if anyone asked me, you know, where shouldn't you make sparkling wine, I would have said, oh, Sicily. <laughs> but the, the, the first year, I can't remember the exact numbers, first year was we had 
probably two golds, and then okay. and then last year was maybe five or something rather. And this year we got forty wines coming from Sicily. That's something, isn't it? After me, you do not expect that. At all. <laughs> no, and I don't. And it's it's great to see because they're obviously technology and expertise together have managed to push that above the the you know the restrictions imposed by both climate and soil with the, with the awards that you host and particularly here you're, you're you're studying the wines you're writing about them do you have much time to enjoy them as well are there any fun moments as all very serious strict judging here or here, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good. <laughs> well, I hope you'll uh, you'll see one of them tonight when we have a barbecue. <laughs> we have um, we have a Michelin star chef, former Michelin star chef Roger Jones of uh, Little Bedouin. Uh, he had a restaurant there that um, was an amazing place to eat. A lot of a lot of people that uh, used to be his regular. Customers were very sorry that he closed down. He's been our ambassador, particularly for um, South Africa and Australia and New Zealand, sort of trying to encourage entries from there. And this year we're, as we did the year before last, we're in our own venue rather than at a hotel. And so we, we have the benefit of mission start cooking from breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So, I mean, that's good. And, and of course, come dinner, we can get to drink, you know, some of the best wines we tasted that day. Not the very best, because the very best wines have to remain anonymous because they go forward for other um, awards. You know, there's best in class, there's regional trophies, there's national trophies, there's world champion trophies. Um, so they have, they, those have to remain uh, anonymous. But the ones that, uh, um, that have won a gold or a silver medal that are not going forward, I mean, really, gold medal is, is, the, um, is the accolade that's probably more important than the trophies. Because the trophies, you're matching apples and pears, you know, because you're matching from different areas. Yes. But all the gold medals are from one area, and so they're all of a certain standard. So, um, so we get to taste those ones because they're not going forward, and so it doesn't matter if we see what they are, and it's really quite nice. See, I remember, you know, when we're judging what we said about this one, and uh, we have a. Yeah, everyone enjoys it. Everyone here is like a, um, it's like a, a small family that gets together for a two-week holiday every year. You mentioned uh, some of the improvements that have been made in terms of the production over the years. Is there anything particular that you think's really stood out and is going to have a, a positive impact for the future? Well, one of the most important was the... Um, uh, introduction of diamitic, uh, diamant corks, where they applied a supercritical um, CO2 process 
to get every last molecule of TCA out of quartz. So, so you will not get, and, and that is that is one of um, the most important things. And, and the other one is, is perhaps us sort of talking back to, uh, as I mentioned before, about the uh, uh, light strike, coup de lumière, yeah. is to, you know, just, just to tell people. Um, How to look after the wine. Yeah, and just, just, they just do not know. Yeah. I mean, even, I will not mention the name of this hotel, mm-hmm. but one of, one of the country's top hotels, I had a couple of uh, nights off down at this hotel with my wife, and we stayed there, and they had the all of their best wines in these Eurocarve type things, but the Eurocarves were lit up with LED, almost a blue color, which is really the worst yeah. color. So a green bottle only has 50% protection. Dark amber, you know, or dead leaf color, if it's really dark, has about 97% protection. But they had all their Bordeaux in green bottles, twenty four seven under the under the light, right, right. and they those best vintages will all be light struck. And in the champagne section, they had three vintages of Cristal, and they'd taken off the protective orange wrapping. I sent a photograph of that to <laughs> to uh, Jean Baptiste Lecaillon at Rodera. And said, "Look, it doesn't matter how much you guys protect your wines. Once it's out there, you know the end user. You can't predict yeah, what to." Yeah. I said, "And this, this is a display that's lit twenty-four-seven in an establishment that's one of the greatest hotels in this country that has a wine director, head sommelier, and several assistant sommeliers." And they do that. It's almost a bit embarrassing, isn't it? It is. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's... Did he say anything? Did he get back to you? Or did he just say, well, what he can wanted, I do? He said he, he wanted to know the, the hotel. And I did tell him okay. the hotel. And he, I think he sent somebody down there to just instruct <laughs> them on place. how to... Yeah, but... It, be, be, yeah. I mean, his is about... The only clear glass bottle that you can understand why they have, because he's as technical minded as they come. Yeah. But, you know, this is a bottle that was designed for the Tsars, and there's this big history around it. And so, I mean, if, if it was me, I'd, I'd, I'd keep the design and just make it out of black glass. Um, but. But he sent somebody down to have a look and to oh, pay attention. So, so, so he said he did. Yeah. I I'm, I'm, don't know whether we'd be welcome at the hotel again, so I haven't gone down to check. Tom, one of the other areas in the wine industry that you have particular expertise in is the wines of Alsace. I was wondering if you could tell me a bit more about that and why they particularly, um, why you focus there as well. Well, I could give you the glib answer of saying, well, when you drive across the channel um, and you get to Calais, the first, the first region you encounter is Champagne. 
And if you carry on, the next region is Alsace. So, so that could be the glib answer. It, it's also, I've also loved Alsace wines since um, uh, I had first trip. I knew a woman, master of wine, Alison True, who uh, unfortunately died of cancer. But I said to her, I want to go to Alsace and uh, I want to learn about the wines. Um, can we go together and you can, you know, show me around? And and we went together and then and it's, it's just a fairy tale land and the food is marvellous and they um, speak different languages. They, they speak Welsh also, as in the, you know, up in the mountains where they keep their babies quiet by feeding them alcohol. And it's <laughs> <laughs> an age-old tactic, isn't it? <laughs> <Never> whiskey. <laughs> but but it's you know it's 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 a love of mine. I wouldn't say that I, um, that I'm specialist in it because I don't keep up with it as much as as much as you should if you're going to be declare yourself a specialist so yeah. it's a I, I say it's a passion rather than being enjoyment factor rather than the yeah and they, they, they went through a period where for various reasons that i could explain but the historical reasons they, they started lowering the yields to the point that the alcohol got so high um potential alcohol got so high and the wines if they fermented them out fully then they would be just so alcoholic I mean, ridiculously alcoholic, 16, 17 degrees. Um, so they don't, so they leave the sugar in. So either the wines are heavy and sweet or they're heavy and too alcoholic. And um, most of the best producers got over that hurdle, seen the mistake they made and started to reverse it. But uh, another passion of mine is, believe it or not, little country called Luxembourg. And I would describe, I, when people ask me to describe Luxembourg, I say, well, it's like a mini Alsace because they have the same varieties there, except that the wines aren't too alcoholic. They aren't sweet. You know, they're dry and fresh. And it's like discovering Alsace all over again before they went too heavy and sweet. Sure. Tom, I was, I was wondering, we've, we've spoken a lot about the awards, a lot about yourself and your history, and you may not be able to answer this, but is there a particular moment throughout the many years that you've been running these awards that, that stands out to you? Um, for, for all the wrong reasons, yeah. It's when Tony Jordan, who was a bit of a mentor to us on the technical side, died. Um, he, I, I said, even when, when I was at um, Decanter chairing the panel, I was always fighting to get Tony on the panel. And the great thing about Tony was, I mean, he was hands-on. Tony Jordan and Brian Crozer were the two people who invented flying winemakers. So they, they, would, they, they invented it in Australia by hopping by plane to follow the harvest across Australia. But it's in the days when consultants got their hands dirty and did the work, you know, rather than the consultants that 
now turn up with, you know, a pinstripe suit and white shirt and 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 just um, write a report and send you an invoice. He knew about winemaking and he'd formed some of the first wine courses, academic wine courses in Australia. And his his um, his degree and his uh, oh, and actually his degree was part of the reason he died of cancer um, because he picked it up from um, what was in the equipment when he was young and it stayed in his lungs. But he, we would sit around and we would joke because there certain things that he'd have an attitude, you know, that, that we all thought was funny. As, you know, we thought something was a bit oxidised and turned into, ah, it's just right Pinot. Um, but there are other times when, when we would genuinely have a question about why, what is that smell, Tony? Why is it there? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and he could, he could tell you, he could, yeah. he, he, yeah, because he talked. So we treated him as a mentor and unfortunately he died just, he was the, one of the fittest, oldest guys I knew. Within just a matter of a few months, he went from being a fit person to a dead person. We look to the the future now. Where do you see the world of champagne, of sparkling wine, if that's what we're putting, where do you see it going? What do you see is coming? Um, Hopefully not Pet Nat. Let's see. (laughs) (laughs) Can you you see anything else beyond not Pet Nat? Well, it's it's really the question of where wines are going to be. Where would you want? Maybe the better way of saying is, where would you like it to go? Do you think? I really wish the sparkling winemakers that are around now, say particularly in somewhere like England, where they have a lot more flexibility to explore. I wish they'd try this. Well, actually, I think they're doing all the right things. Okay. For example, don't mean to keep harping on about light stripe, but as soon as we started saying about clear glass, bang, it was gone, you know. There's, in, in, in a tasting of English sparkling wines, very rare, you still see a few, it's very rare to see a clear glass. Mm. In Champagne, it's tons of it. Okay. Anywhere in Europe, in Italy, tons of it. Um, it's all market men driven. So it goes back to the flexibility of a, a relatively new industry. Yeah. Winemaking. That can, that can move on the fly. Yes. And... Uh, they've got things that they can do in this country. Uh, Like um, there are certain areas that that would be pretty good to to be making sparkling wine, um, but it can be a little bit too breezy. Well, we've never had a clow here. So why not build some high walls around some of the, you know, areas on coastal areas where there's, um, the coastal winds that come. You can see them in certain vineyards when you walk around. I see they've got some of the windbreaks, haven't they? I think they've they have windbreaks, well, but but you know how successful they are when when you look at the trees and bushes and you see that they're actually at an angle. Okay. <laughs> they grow at an angle yeah, because yeah, yeah. of the wind. Yeah. 
and that's that's what you can. So the, the there are other areas, and there's talk about what we should call it. Well, we just call it English sparkling wine. Yeah. Um, there's a few Welsh ones. I'd like to see a few more in Wales because you only get um, the best wines coming when you've got more local competition because you're going to make wine better yeah. or compete with somebody that's close to you. There aren't enough producers in Wales at the moment. Um, uh, we have some that are put in this country, but uh, not that many. I think it would be, even with climate change, a long time before we get any Scottish wines. I think so. It seems like the little fun off. It's still quite remarkable that we've got wines coming out of Norfolk, though. So even it's, it's barren and very windy, but they, they seem to be pulling yeah. off. But I agree, Scotland might be a bit too much of a push. Tom, I was wondering, you've mentioned a number of stories throughout your career today. Is there a particularly memorable moment that you can recall? It's a very big question, but if anything came to mind, I wonder whether it be the, the moment of... Sleeping in Madonna's bed. Um, can you tell me more? <laughs> in, in Michigan. Uh, Madonna wasn't in the bed at the time. That's disappointing. <laughs> yes, it, it was. But then I was sleeping in it with my wife, so... Um, uh, okay. <laughs> her father... Perhaps you could tell us how you got into Madonna's bed? Um, well, her father has a vineyard in Michigan. Right. And um, on our fir my first visit there, he said, Oh, come back and you can stop with us anytime. Just use it as a base. Go out and visit other other ones like that. So I went back and uh, took my wife and he showed us our room, said, uh, uh, you can have this one. This is one Madonna uses when she comes home. Uh, so that's how we, we got that. Right. And and he just had an open door policy. He said, come and go as, as you want. Um, we came back one day and nobody was in the house. So we just sort of wandered around, having a nose as you do, and looking at the photos. And there was, when, when she married uh, Guy, what's his name? Uh, Guy Ritchie, yeah. He, they famously didn't have any photographs of that wedding ever published. And there on the side was a picture of Madonna and Guy Ritchie in a kilt at their wedding. And I took a photograph of it and it's always, I've always been rather chuffed at myself <laughs> that I never phoned up anyone and tried to flog because I could have got a lot of money for that photograph. And just down the hill from his vineyard is a guy called Larry Morby. If you go in there, you see pictures of him levitating. Does that help the vines? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know, but, but he did, did have a certain magic touch. There was, everyone saw how Larry Morby sold, even when he wasn't making particularly good sparkling wine, it, it would just sell. It would just fly off the shelves. And so everybody else started making sparkling wine. And none of them could sell it. So they said to Larry one day, 
would you take our spark of minds back? Um, you know, take buy them off of us, you know, and you can relabel them and sell sure. them. And he said, um, okay. And as as we're coming, he he one day just very drunkenly um, filled in a form requesting permission to sell under the brand name Sex. Right. And that's in, you know, we, we, we get very Puritan about it over here in America. It's even more. So Michigan's nearly on, in um, the uh, Bible Belt. Yeah. <laughs> nearly. So he didn't really think. He just sort of. And as these wines are coming in, a letter pops through the box and he's been given permission to use the, the brand name Sex. So he took all of these wines, he opened them up, he put a little bit of red wine in each to make it rosé, <clears throat> sealed them up again and relabeled them as Sex and they just flew off the shelf. And they're all different wines, you know. I went to taste taste. Um, with him, and he had um, about four or five, and I said, "Oh, I like that one," uh, but didn't didn't like some some of the others. It all depends which one he had, but it just it just flew. And the, the people who sold him the wine didn't know whether to laugh or cry <clears throat> because they were very happy that he took the wines off the hands, sure. but absolutely amazed. That he could sell and to sell it under the sex name, and I remember bringing it back for um, a tasting idea for Wine Report, which is one of one of the books that I had an annual that went for about six years, I think. And we had the bottle sex was there for everyone, to, and I remember getting a, an email from Jancis Robinson said. Thank you very much for the tasting. I particularly enjoyed the sex. Yeah. <laughs> it's just itching to write that too. <laughs> Tom, thank you. I really appreciate your time. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? No, no, that's fine. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you.